0: I'm Mickey, and this is Mikipedia, where I sit down and chat to doctors, professors, athletes, practitioners and experts in their fields related to health, nutrition, fitness and well-being. And I'm delighted that you're here. Morena everyone, I hope you are having a good week. Uh, Today I am super excited to uh, bring to you my conversation with Zach. Now for those uh, endurance athletes out there this will be a name well familiar to you. So Zach is an ultramarathon runner, he is a coach and he's well renowned for his LCHF approach to his diet and other aspects of his training which may kind of fall outside of your conventional training regime if you like. So Zach is a bit of a superstar really. He holds the world records for the 100 miles completing it in 11 hours and 19 minutes and 13 seconds and to the 12 hour distance record as well, where he managed to run 104.8 miles in that uh, 12 hours, which is amazing. Um, Zach resides in Phoenix in the States. And today on the podcast, we talk about a whole host of things, including why and how he embarked on low carb, high fat and the benefits that he found and how that's transitioned Over time, that's a a super important part. We talked all about his involvement in the faster study, how he fuels during an ultra marathon, and at the time of the recording, Zach was preparing for a race called the Desert Solstice Invitational, which was a twenty-four hour race. His first, and so we talk all about how he managed to fit in two hundred miles of week training, in addition to all of the other things he does, including host. a super popular podcast, the Human Performance Outliers podcast. And of course, we talked all around his nutrition and around that. We talk about the benefits of strength training and how he builds that into an already heavy training load. And also talked about his involvement with the charity Fight for the Forgotten, how he's preparing for in 2021, which is a this year actually of course, um, the Transcontinental Run San Fran to New York event. Now the race that Zach was preparing for has already been conducted and he talks all about that on his podcast actually um, because that was on December 12th. But sit back, relax and hopefully you enjoy this incredibly informative conversation that I have with Zach Bitter. And we're on. Zach Bitter, how are you this morning?
1: Very good. Thanks for asking. How about yourself?
0: I'm well, thank you. How was your run?
1: Good, good. They uh, seem like they're always present right now. I'm actually training for a 24-hour event in December and it's going to be, hopefully if things go well, the longest I've ever run continuously. So I'm doing a lot of kind of volume at a relatively low intensity right now. So it's been kind of a fun experience, but it, it certainly eats up a good chunk of the day. <laughs>
0: Mate, I was listening to you on Human Performance Outliers, which is your podcast, which I love tuning into every week um, and listening to you discuss what you're doing or what you're currently training for and what you've got kind of coming up in the future. So when I asked, you know, how your run was, it wasn't because I you know, I'm stalking you with Strava, though I do. Um, <laughs> I was pretty much thinking the same thing. Like, you've either come in from a run or you're about to go for a run. But that kind of event, it's sort of unavoidable and amazing.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's it's fun. It's uh, it's interesting. I think like I think volume is an interesting component to endurance, and I think it also is such a big picture variable for folks because. You know, people will look at my training, and they'll think, okay, I need to be doing that if I want to get this result. Mm-hmm. And really, I, I usually try to share with folks about kind of starting from where they are, and enjoying the process and kind of taking on what I like to call like a micro stressing process where you're kind of gradually upping that stuff over time and letting your body kind of thoroughly adapt to it before you kind of, you know, overreach again, so to speak. So I'm actually kind of in that position in myself right now where I've, I've logged some of the biggest volume training weeks I have to date (laughs) for this particular race. So it is kind of an interesting spot to be in. Whereas a lot of the races I've done the last couple of years, I've pushed up to kind of historic volume levels, but haven't really gone too much past them or, or even past them at all in some cases. So uh, that's the part of the ultra marathon stuff I like the most though, is kind of, you find yourself in positions from time to time where this is a new experience. This is something I've never done before. So you have that big question mark of whether you can actually perform during that situation and uh, kind of see what happens when you, when you branch out into the unknown a little bit.
0: Yeah. And you know, it was funny. I was listening. Maybe it was your podcast with Dom D'Agostino actually Mm. a couple of weeks ago. And prior to listening to it, I was just chatting to my hubby Barry and he's like an ultra ultra runner as well and we were like going you know we're getting older i think maybe we need to start taking some rest days and you know how do we kind of fit that into our schedule then i'm out on a walk and i'm listening to you zach and you're like yeah i've just like ticked off 170 mile a week and i'm like <laughs> mate maybe i'm doing this all wrong <laughs> like it's massive how do you actually fit it in like what does your schedule look like on a day-to-day basis
1: yeah, it's a good question. I think uh, I'm definitely fortunate in that a kind of a huge portion of my workdays revolved around the training and racing side of things. So I definitely have a lot more flexibility than when I first got into the sport. Uh, you know, when I when I first started doing when I did my first ultra marathon, I was a full-time teacher and I did that for mm-hmm. about five years through 2015. So essentially the first half of my ultra-marathon running career was kind of in the context of a more structured full-time job. Uh, which made it a little more difficult. That was a lot of like, you know, wake up at 4 a.m., run for a couple hours, go to work, go for another run perhaps after work and then, you know, eat dinner and start thinking about bed and then just repeat over and over again until, until the weekend or, uh, you know, a holiday break or a summer vacation or something like that. So for me though, you know, once I kind of started, uh, having some results in the sport and mm. kind of growing my business outside of the actual training and racing side of things like with coaching and just helping out with marketing initiatives with some of my sponsors uh, and podcasting as well it just became a lot more control of my schedule so I can move things around a lot easier to account for big training blocks. So for me, I, I definitely have phases of the year where I'm training much less than I am now where, Mm. you know, I might be out there for about 10 hours a week or something like that, which is a lot easier to kind of fit in, uh, in from, in like a, like a recreational standpoint, um, for this particular block though, you know, I'm putting 20, 25 hours when you add in like recovery stuff, like stretching mobility and strength work, there's some weeks where I'm probably pushing up towards 30 hours of of actual things related to the act of running and recovering and getting ready for the next session. So uh, that's a lot of time. (laughs) Um, And, but you know, what I like to do with that is uh, I do like consultations and coaching stuff. So I'm just mindful of my timeline with that sort of stuff. So when I get into the phase of training where I know the volume is going to spike up to that, I kind of hold off on like how many uh, consultations I'll take or how many coaching clients I new coaching clients I'll bring in and things like that. So I can manipulate the schedule a little better. And, you know, thankfully, a lot of the other stuff, like the podcasting, um, I can kind of plan around that by recording a bunch of episodes during a, a, a lower mileage week. So, mm. you know, people like to look at the big ones, like the 170 mile week, the 203 mile week and that stuff, but there was also a 50 mile week in there. So yeah, uh, that, that helps to have that kind of step back or that deload week. I like to call it in there too, where you can kind of focus in on some of the non-running related activities, catch up on that stuff, set yourself up um, to kind of have the opportunity to really spend a lot more time during the weeks where you build up and, you know, I also kind of look at different areas too, like around the race itself. So my race Mm -hmm. is December 12th. Uh, I'll have a two week taper where I reduce the volume significantly. And then I'll probably have two weeks after that, where I do very little running. Mm -hmm. Uh, so I've got a a good four week block minus the race day itself to, to really work on some of those other things that, that, you know, I like to do and that kind of help, help, uh, my own business and things like that too. But right now it's a lot of, you know, I'll wake up, Relatively in the morning, usually for me, it's uh, I, I wake up between maybe five or six in the morning, head out for right around three hours or so, come back, uh, you know, check emails and things like that, work on some coaching plans, you know, whatever projects I kind of have on the plate, you know, maybe do a podcast and then, you know, head back out sometime anywhere between early to late afternoon to even early evening for, for a second run uh, which usually is uh, followed with some strength and mobility stuff on most days too. So, mm. um, you know, that's kind of uh, the, my lifestyle for the last few weeks anyhow.
0: Yeah. I mean, and you know, you've just probably um, kind of outlined almost every runner's dream, right? Like it's that whole difference between being a professional and, and then doing it uh, kind of almost as a hobbyist, if you like, outside of that full-time stuff and that whole recovery piece is such an important element of it. And I think people often forget that like, who, um, who aren't professionals, if you like, and they're, they're like, Oh, oh, it's always about just about the running. And I remember this conversation I had with someone like this is maybe 15 years ago and he was an an avid runner. And during the summer break, he'd like go out on a massive run and then he'd sit down and just like watch TV. And he'd be like, mate, this is what being a professional athlete must feel like. And I'm like, (laughs) no, this is probably what being unemployed feels like because a professional (laughs) athlete has all of the recovery and the massage and you know all of those other things that kind of, make up that whole i suppose professional element but also you do have that little bit of additional time um zach what i um have picked up from like listening to a lot of your um podcasts and stuff is that you're a big proponent of strength training for runners and this isn't something and as i understand it for you this is something you've actually done almost all the way through is that is that right
1: Yeah, you know, I actually was first introduced to strength training at an early age, I started lifting weights in a more kind of traditional manner in high school. And it was just partly due to, uh, you know, wanting to be stronger, for whatever reason, uh, in a high school age boy wants to do that. So um, I was kind of familiar with just the process and some of the technique and stuff like that. But you know, once I started taking running a lot more seriously, like in college and even post-college I'd go in and out of kind of doing any type of strength work I would do Mm -hmm. like it was just maybe a little less structured and when I would do it I didn't necessarily have a good why as to why I was doing it or a good answer as to why I was doing what I was doing um probably until around maybe 2013-2014 when Uh, I started speaking with some like strength and conditioning coaches and things and just kind of starting to kind of focus in on, you know, what actually should I be doing as an endurance athlete to leverage strength uh, to benefit me from a performance standpoint, as opposed to just kind of do it because you think you should to stay, stay for stronger for health purposes and things like that. And, Mm. uh, and that's when I kind of started dialing it in a little bit. And as kind of simultaneous with that, I think we've seen a lot more research coming out in favor of strength training. I know, you know, I've had phases of my, my running career where, you know, some of the, you know, well-known you know coaches and folks in the, in the sport would say, Hey, it's, it's not necessarily something you need to do a lot of as an endurance athlete, or, uh, they see it as something that's pulling you away from the activity that you should be trying to fine tune or that act of running. So the kind of like running joke perhaps was if you've got time to go to the gym for 45 minutes, you may as well just go out for a run instead. Yeah. And, To a degree that can be true. I think for some folks, especially if they're time crunch, you do have to look at like what's the primary objective versus what are some of the supplementary activities. And at the end of the day, you do have to kind of work with what schedule you have and things like that. But I do think, um, you know, there's also a, a wide range of athletes, both recreationally and professional who have fairly different training protocols than I do. And some that you skew on the lower end of the mileage spectrum, and they just happen to respond well to that type of a stimulus. Whereas I tend to be a very big volume responder in training in general, mm-hmm. and one thing that kind of comes with that territory, in my opinion, is you're 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 skewing more of your running to lower intensity stuff when you start becoming a volume-based runner or a high volume runner, and that type of uh, lifestyle just sets you up kind of to have a lot of like one-dimensional movements yeah. or you know imbalances, essentially, you can have a lot of effects that kind of affect the development and atrophication of other areas of your body. So, you know, strength training has become something that I really like to do as a way to kind of balance that out and help prevent, you know, some of the overuse injuries and stuff like that, that can kind of pop up when you have those overdevelopments of certain areas of your body at the expense of others.
0: Yeah, totally. And I think that's such an important thing as a runner. I mean, obviously I'm a nutritionist and I, I talk to clients about nutrition, but as a, an athlete as well, we also chat about what they're doing training-wise and, and things like that. And so many runners, particularly or endurance athletes, just don't, they don't prioritize strength where possibly they should because it does feel like that added extra. But I i wonder whether, you know, it doesn't have to be that kind of, you know, three hours in the gym a week doing Doing strength based based stuff, but working on some of those areas that help support the yeah the different range of motion, right? Because as we age, we know that you lose muscle mass, you lose bone mass, and whilst endurance sport actually is quite protective in some of those areas, it's that you know if you fall and you're not reactive and you don't have good balance or you don't you're not very agile, then that's going to prevent you from kind of doing what you love long term.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think you're right. I mean, you don't have to find yourself in the gym for multiple hours per week. I think a lot of the benefits when you look at it from a endurance standpoint, come with just like a single day in the gym for, for like your lower body. So you can get away with something as simple as like probably 30 minutes once a week and, and, and see some of those benefits that we see in the research for strength training for endurance athletes. And the way I kind of like to structure it is if you look at kind of beginning of a training plan to race day if you block it in maybe the thirds and kind of have like your base building phase and then maybe some of the kind of the key workout phase uh or i should say maybe some middle a middle section for ultra running for me anyway for the longer stuff like 100 miles and further and it actually kind of looks like a reverse period i schedule because i'm doing some of the faster stuff earlier and you know the way i like to do it is i'll do i do mostly low repetition higher weight relative to what i can tolerate compared to what I think a lot of endurance athletes might think of as weightlifting and my rep ranges are usually kind of like eight to 10 in those early stages of the training plan. And then I'll, I'll kind of scale that down to maybe about five, uh, four, four to six or five is usually kind of a good set number in the middle of the plan. And then as I'm getting closer to the race itself, or if I'm doing a season where I'm kind of doing some training races leading up during that phase of the year, I'll even come down to maybe three reps per set. Mm. Uh, so when you think about that, if you're doing two or three sets of, anywhere between 3 to 10 reps. It doesn't have to take a lot of time. You can you can kind of get in and get out with that and, you know, be on with your day and still see a lot of the the positive uh aspects of the strength side of things.
0: Yeah, sure. And and what kind of movements are you doing? Compounds, deadlifts, those kind of things or
1: Mhm. Yeah. My big focus is compound movements. So I like, uh, doing kind of like deadlifts or anything where I'm pulling weight off the ground. Mm. Um, I really like to activate kind of that posterior chain. It's one thing I kind of recognized kind of midway through, uh, my career was that, uh, that was kind of an issue for me where like my hamstrings and glutes were quite weak relative to like my quads. So, mm. um, doing those movements like deadlifts and you know, pulling weight off the ground, kettlebell swings, that sort of stuff really kind of helped catch that area of my body up a little bit. Nice. Um, also do things like, uh, like box jumps, weighted lunges and things like that as well. Uh, throughout the, throughout my training plan from the, from the lower body side of things.
0: Yeah. And is it fair to say that if your glutes aren't activated, you can pretty much call yourself a runner? Like, isn't yeah. that, that, that that's typically the main thing that almost every physio has said to what well, me and almost every runner that I speak to, it's like my glutes aren't firing. It's like, Well, yes, of course not. You're a runner.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. You definitely see that a lot.
0: Yeah. Now, um, Zach, obviously your um, when you came onto my radar in part, it was your LCHF approach to to running and low carb, high fat, which back at the time, and uh, I may be wrong about this. And I'm thinking it was around 2011 when you kind of embarked on LCHF, but obviously if I'm wrong, you'll, you'll correct that. Um, what was it that kind of, kind of, what was your diet like prior to kind of embarking on low carbon? What encouraged the change for you?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was kind of near the end of 2011. I had just finished what I would consider my first like full season of ultra marathon racing where I'd done uh, 350 milers. And, uh, you know, previous to that, I would say probably early on in college, I started paying much more close attention to nutrition in general. Mm. So at that point I was convinced that running was like kind of the sport I wanted to focus on or prioritize. So I just started kind of looking at, well, what is, what is a good nutrition plan for an endurance athlete? And, um, this would have been back in like 2004, 2005, probably. Uh, and, you know, back then, and even today, there, you know, a lot of the literature and a lot of the information you're going to find is going to push you towards moderate to high carbohydrate. Obviously they're going to skew you towards, uh, you know, healthier options within that category if you can. So a lot of like kind of fruits, vegetables, whole grains, that sort of stuff is like kind of the big cornerstone in a lot of those protocols. So that's where I kind of directed my own nutrition at that point in time. And that, that seemed to work fine as far as I could tell in the, you know, during my collegiate career and some of my running efforts after that, up until the end of 2011, when I did start focusing more on ultra marathon, what I noticed was, you know, some things that had been fairly strength qualities for me started kind of regressing a bit. So Mm. like some examples were um, up until that year, I had been a really good sleeper where I would basically, when I went to bed, I'd sleep for eight, maybe nine hours and just be out like a light and wake up the next morning, fully refreshed. And then, you know, the, the day was pretty much, uh, you know, higher, you I got pretty consistent energy levels and that sort of stuff. Um, that started to shift. I started finding with that I was waking up multiple times a night and having a hard time falling back asleep. And, at, you know, at one point I was actually blocking off like 10 hours a night for sleep because I knew I was going to need an extra hour plus just to kind of account for like the restlessness side of things. So I thought mm. if I want to get eight to nine hours of sleep, I better plan for 10. Um, other thing I noticed was just big energy swings throughout the day. So I'd wake, I'd wake up and have energy. I'd get my workout done and the workout would feel good. And then I'd probably have like an hour or two after that where I felt pretty energized and it'd be like a big dip. And then I kind of had be on that roller coaster throughout the rest of the day where, uh, you know, I was either like highly energized or felt like I could lay down and take a nap anywhere. Uh, so those things didn't necessarily register to me as ideal, uh, not for a sustainability standpoint within the sport uh, and being new to the sport and, and young to it, uh, the, the thought of kind of stepping back or, you know, not targeting my strengths within the training side of things wasn't necessarily the first thing I wanted to try to try to do. I knew in the back of my mind that maybe would be something I had to consider if uh, if I couldn't find other ways to kind of remedy the situation. Uh, but thankfully for me, at the same time, I kind of started looking into you know, different, different nutrition strategies for endurance athletes. And then specifically within endurance athletes were focusing on longer events. Like at that time, it was 50 miles. Eventually it would become hundred miles and that sort of distance. But I kind of stumbled upon it a little bit by accident. I think I, I was also feeling a little guilty with how much time I was spending running per Mm -hmm. week on top of teaching full-time. And, uh, I, I, I discovered podcasts at that time. I was like, this is great. I can, you know, if I spend two hours running in the morning, I can learn something along the way. And then even yeah. if, uh, then if I feel bad about spending the two hours running, at least I can kind of rest, rest at ease, knowing I learned something while I was out there doing it. And, and that's where I kind of first started getting some of the insight into, you know, perhaps focusing on making the foundation of my nutrition fats versus, versus carbohydrates. And, uh, you know, for me, I was fortunate that I was able to Get in touch with guys like uh, Dr. Volokh and Dr. Finney, who at that time were kind of the couple of the only guys kind of in that space that that were like, well known or well known enough that I was able to find them anyway. And they were they were kind about giving me just some some tips and pointers about kind of maybe when and how to implement it. So I went in kind of knowing that this was a pretty big metabolic shift. Mm. And with that big of a dietary intervention, that's going to be stressful to a degree for a while as your body kind of adapts to that. So I didn't implement it until after I'd finished my final race that year, and was in off-season mode. So I had about a month where my training was was basically unstructured. So if I Mm -hmm. felt like running, I could go for a run. But if I felt like I didn't want to run anymore, I could stop and it wasn't really going to be Something that was going to give me any angst because I wasn't targeting a specific event at the time, and I think that allowed me to, to probably have a little bit more of a smooth transition into it. So, you know, for me, it was like the first thirty days to a month was basically um, kind of a little bit of a mix where I'd go for a run and I'd feel great, feel normal, or I'd mm. go for a run and I would notice this intensity is producing a pace that's a minute to maybe two minutes slower per mile at times. Yeah. Uh, so had I not known what, uh, to expect that I probably would have bailed on it and just saw, okay, this doesn't work. And I think I see that happen a lot within the endurance running community where people are like, okay, this, this looks great on paper. They implement it for a couple of weeks, then they decide they don't like it anymore. And yeah. certainly there's probably folks who are going to be better served with a different dietary approach to their endeavors. But, um, I think to give it a fair shake, you do want to probably implement it during the off season or a time when you have like a month or two to kind of really kind of find uh, the opportunity to focus in on it and not have as much of that training load stress as you would during kind of the middle of a season or during a peaking phase. So for me, it from there, it was kind of like just playing around with how do I individualize this now to my mm-hmm. lifestyle versus just kind of plug and play a strict ketogenic diet.
0: Yeah.
1: And, you know, along the way, I, it probably took me about year and a half to two years to really fine tune that where I found out like, okay, during this phase of training, when I'm periodizing my training this way, this is kind of the macronutrient ratios I would, I'm going to perform best at and being less about kind of less dogmatic in the sense of being like pro fat, anti-carb or vice versa. And more about uh, how do I improve my fat oxidation rates to the point where I can really lean on those to defend muscle glycogen, but also preserve some ability to take in an exogenous carbohydrate so that I can still pull that lever on race day or for a big workout if I need to or want to. Yeah. Uh, So I think that's the balancing act. It's it's not like an all or nothing black or white thing. It's more of a sliding scale. So, you know, I could slide that scale and get my fat oxidation rates up to where I peak out at maybe two grams per minute, which... Mm would be like off the charts fat oxidation rates, but that might come at the expense of me being able to utilize an exogenous carbohydrate in any way. So if I'm doing a a race that's short enough and intense enough where I am gonna meaningfully dip into my muscle glycogen, I probably wanna be able to defend my muscle Mm -hmm. glycogen through some exogenous carbohydrate. Uh, So then maybe I don't wanna slide the scale all the way over to that, that super high two grams per minute. Um, but I also don't want to be very low where, you know, where defending muscle glycogen means I have to be taking in, you know, maybe 60, 90 grams of carbohydrate per hour, yeah. um, which for me would be a recipe of disaster at the hundred mile distance. I can maybe get away with that for a 50 miler or a race that takes five to six hours. But if I'm going to be out there for you know, 12 plus hours, then that sort of fueling is just going to, I'm going to give back just as much time from stoppages from using the bathroom and losing my nutrition and all that stuff that, um, it wasn't the most direct route for me, at least from my experience. So, uh, kind of finding that balance where I could be in a position where my intra-race fueling needs were maybe between 20 to 40 grams per hour mm. was a sweet spot for me. I could, uh, almost guarantee, uh, barring something, uh, extreme that I wouldn't have a digestive issue from that low of a fueling intake. Uh, but also my fat oxidation rates would be high enough that I wouldn't have to push much past that in order to properly defend my muscle glycogen and still have the energy to kind of have a strong finish to the race versus kind of fading out.
0: Yeah, sure. And I guess it goes without saying that some of those, uh, the reasons why you were exploring a different nutrition approach, um, like the sleep issues and stuff, they were resolved once you, once you embarked on LCHF,
1: Oh, yeah, I should add to that. That's, uh, (laughs) that's actually another reason why I kind of stuck to it, I think, too, because while I was in that kind of initial four weeks or so and noticing a little bit of variance between how my, my pacing was going during some of those just easy non-structured runs. One thing that changed pretty quickly, like, in about a week or so was I started sleeping consistently through the night. Uh, I remember thinking, like, just just, you know, waking up surprised one morning, because I had slept completely through the night without waking up once. And I you know, I actually, I woke up that morning thinking, okay, it's gotta be like, you know, like one in the morning or something like that. And realizing that it was just a couple minutes before my alarm clock was actually going to go off was kind of a shock to me. And when that started to consistently happen, I knew there had to be something going on that was uh, at least beneficial at the individual level for me. So uh, that's been kind of a huge, a huge piece to the puzzle for me. Cause I think a lot of times when people think of like performance, they think of like well, how am I going to make this particular workout faster? But in reality, there's so many different angles to it because let's say you nail a workout, um, but then you don't sleep hardly at all that next night. And then it takes you an extra two days to recover from that workout and you have to postpone the next one or push it back. You know, you're not going to accumulate the same amount of training load over the course of your plan if you have that sort of uncertainty in your training. Hmm. So for me, being able to sleep consistently is huge because it means I might be able to, uh, you know, fit in four or five extra quality sessions during a training block that I wouldn't be able to, if I was constantly losing sleep. And, you know, over time that adds up to, to just create a stronger, a stronger, uh, an athlete at the start line of a race.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I really like how you were describing how you periodize your carbohydrate to support your training. And in the back of your mind, you're thinking about things like you know how much carbohydrate can i tolerate when i'm out there in a race situation and you know i came across kind of lchf related stuff and Vollock and finney and their little bible the art and science of yeah. low-carb living brilliant book um, and their other sports nutrition one and i think my understanding and learning has definitely evolved over the years to kind of think, oh, this would be amazing for something like marathon, to thinking, actually, this is far more utility in the kind of events that you're talking about, the ultra marathon style ones, where, where, I mean, it's individual, but for someone with real gut related issues, if they have to rely on that exogenous fuel source of carbohydrate for an event that is, you know, of any real length, then that is totally going to be a limiting factor.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I think you're right. I mean, the context is everything with that and the intensity event certainly plays a big role there. And and the marathon, I think is just such an interesting event because Mm -hmm. it's the way I describe it. I mean, it's long enough where you have to, you you have to be conscious of your pacing, but it's also short enough and intense enough where you are going to have some meaningful dips into your muscle glycogen. And it is going to be very oxygen expensive, the intensity at which you race a marathon. So um, you know, it costs less oxygen to metabolize a carbohydrate than it does a fat. So when you're running at those intensities, that can be a be a factor, I think more so for kind of the front end of the field where they've got yeah. like a lot of their boxes checked already. You know, I think there's still probably some application for like a low carb approach for for a lot of folks within the context of more Olympic distance stuff from like 5k to a marathon, Depending on what their goals are, or a lot of the a lot of folks probably have dual or tan, or multiple goals versus just having the race of their life. So, I think we oftentimes get into a situation where we either where where people either accidentally or intentionally kind of strawman the idea of kind of a low carb approach by you know referencing Olympic athletes, where it's yeah. like, well, an Olympic athlete's lifestyle is drastically different than the average person's to begin with so it's not a very clean comparison for say you know someone in their 40s who's training for their first marathon and also working 10 hours a day and has a family so it's like there's there's a lot of variables to play in but if you look at strictly from just like a a clean comparison if you take like you like me for example and just put me across the spectrum of distances and intensities you're definitely going to notice that purely from a performance standpoint Carbohydrate usage is going to lower the perceived effort. It is going to allow a higher rate of oxygen consumption at those paces that are very vital to, like, a marathon. So, I would have to probably fuel differently if I were going to do something, if I was going to target some of those other distances. Um, but there are also a lot of times distances that don't require a lot of intra race fueling either. So, yeah you know, you remove this huge obstacle or hurdle that is present in a lot of the racing I do, which is digestive issues where we see, you know, you know, essentially 50, 60% rate of digestive issues of some shape or form for folks who are participating in these events. And, you know, that has to be something you consider when you decide, you know, how you're going to structure a race that you've been preparing for, for four to six months.
0: Absolutely. And I think as well, even though I said with regards to, you know, marathon might not be the best, um, event in terms of not taking on board carbohydrate you know you've got your traditional sports nutrition carbohydrate guidelines which as a practitioner we recognize really early on that you could never recommend you know you might recommend someone taking six grams of carbs per kg body weight to 10 grams but if if they're eating that volume of carbohydrate they can't get it from the good sources which are promoted because you just can't eat that volume of food but then you're also you run the risk of dipping out on the protein and the fat and the nutrients that they provide, right, to help support the recovery and, and things like that. So there's a there's almost this, it, it's almost impossible to, to do the sports nutrition guidelines. Um, but I really like James Morton. I think it's James Morton, um, the kind of fuel for the work required. So, you know, you support the okay. sessions that require supporting in terms of the um, carbohydrate intake. And then outside of that, you you know, even, you know, a lower carbohydrate approach can still on some days be 150 grams to 200 grams of of carbohydrate. Um, It's not necessarily the 20 grams of carbohydrate that is being studied in the science lab that's then proving that this is not a good approach for athletes. You know, Mm -hmm. it's that real life context versus um, kind of what you see out there um, published in literature around how useful or otherwise kind of a keto or low carb approach is.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I think that's, that's spot on. I think it's, it's really interesting. I, I really like what Dr. Mike Nelson has to say about this sort of stuff. Cause he, he says like, when you start getting to that range where you're looking at like 10 grams per kilo um, of body weight, I mean, you're putting yourself, you're skewing yourself to a position where he compares it to having a sports car in the driveway and neutral and just revving the engine. He's like, you're burning that high octane fuel and going nowhere. So yeah. you, you have a pers- person in that position who you know, is maybe training 30 to 50 miles a week, they've got their nine to five job, their family, and they're eating 70, 80% of their diet from carbohydrate. Well, they're revving that engine in the driveway, so to speak, all day long, like while they're sitting on the couch, while they're at work, while they're doing their activity. And essentially, you're asking that really small fuel tank that your body has, which is the your liver and muscle glycogen to perform a very, very high percentage of your um, your energy requirements. And, mm-hmm. you know, even from the low intensity side of things. So I think it becomes almost an individual question at that point where you want to ask yourself, well, where are my fat oxidation rates at? Where are my ratios of carb to fat metabolization throughout the spectrum of different intensities? And then start adjusting from there. So, you know, when we look at like, you know, what is a ketogenic diet or what is constitutes low carb, that kind of is, to me, that's just kind of a lot of noise to, for the most part, because yeah. at the at the end of the day, it's like, you know, if I eat, say, 150 to 200 grams of carbohydrate in a day, someone who's a lot more sedentary than me and is on a strict ketogenic diet of 20 to 30 grams might think that's a ton of carbohydrate, whereas the, you know, a, a traditional endurance athlete who's you know, eating maybe 600 plus grams of carbohydrate a day might see that as very, very small amounts. But at the end of the day, it's like my fat, fat oxidation rates are going to tell the story of how my body's going to behave. So like if I can produce a fat oxidation rate of 1.5 grams per minute, eating 150 grams of carbohydrates a day, then I'm pretty confident that my fueling program is going to work well for me on race day. And I'm going to be able to defend that muscle glycogen the way I need to in order to have a have a strong day if everything else kind of plays out for me.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I think that your performance and how you, your ability to withstand the training load is really testament that, you know, you really dial, you're dialing in and you're doing what works for you. Right. Cause I think mm-hmm. that's the, that's the other thing is that, as I understand that you've been pretty much injury free Zach for a lot of your racing career, would that be right?
1: Yeah. Since I started ultra running, I really haven't had a lot of issues with injuries. I you know I had a bout of injuries early on in college that cost me some some seasons I I ended up doing three years of cross country and two years of indoor and outdoor track and field and the reason it was two years of indoor and outdoor track and field and not three was because I had kind of a string of uh, Achilles tendonitis and IT band syndrome type stuff that kept me off the 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 track for for that first year but um yeah since I started doing ultra running I've basically i've had a couple little things that have just kind of like sidelined me for like a couple of days or maybe a week at the most and then one injury that i had to take off about five to seven weeks of structured training to kind of get back but that was the only one that really cost me any events in the grand scheme so um i like to think that that's a pretty good uh setup for what is now a little over 10 years of ultramarathon running racing yeah
0: yeah absolutely um Set, you mentioned before that the fat oxidation rates is something which you know you're using as a bit of an indicator to do what's working for you. Have you always measured that stuff, or was your first kind of you know as your first foray into keto, were you measuring that stuff along the way?
1: Yeah, you know, I wasn't measuring it while I was following kind of a moderate high carbohydrate diet at any at any point. Um, If you you know, my suspicion is that it probably fell within the parameters that we saw in a lot of the literature where a lot of folks, you know, they're, you know, getting up to maybe a gram per minute when they're following a moderate to high carbohydrate diet. Um, but who knows, I mean, there's probably some variance there and you can train your fat oxidation rate too. It can be something that you can move the needle on independent of your diet or your, your macronutrient ratios. Um, in fact, uh, Alan Cousins, he has got a performance lab in Boulder, Colorado, has seen some really interesting stuff with this, with even some of his his athletes that are kind of more along the lines of a moderate carbohydrate approach, have seen improvements in their fat oxidation rates by just the timing of it. Mm. And I, I think we're seeing this type of a mindset even move into some of those more Olympic-based events at, at, at even the Olympic athlete level, where they're being a little more mindful than just saying carbs are king, I'm going to hammer them day in and day out, in season, off season, you know, rest day, big workout day and everything in between. And they're looking at it more as like, maybe it's the foundation of their diet, but they can also move that needle a little bit by abstaining from some carbohydrates around some of those lower intensity long sessions or those off seasons where they're not asking nearly as much from their body and kind of use that to kind of pull that, that improvement in fat oxidation a little bit. Um, but what we learned in the faster study is that independent of training, dietary interventions are going to move that needle drastically harder or further. So then it just comes down to where you're at. Like if, if you're somebody who has very low fat oxidation rates and you want, you need to improve them drastically to be able to perform the way you want a dietary intervention versus just a a shifting of macronutrient timing is likely going to be a necessity um, and that's going to just be a little bit more of an individual thing from one person to the next. Uh, so I think those, those getting, getting a, a metabolic test is probably a very useful tool for a lot of people if you can find a spot and, and, get that done. But, you know, ultimately that's not an option for everyone. So I do really like using kind of some field tests with, with my athletes and clients that are kind of leaning more towards like a low carbohydrate, uh, nutrition plan and, What I like to do is we'll start to kind of use their long run as kind of like a benchmark as to like where they are at from a fat oxidation rate. Like, if I have a a client who can go and do, say, a four or five hour effort on the weekend, just water and electrolytes and not a whole lot of um, carbohydrate or no carbohydrate the morning of that session and feel like their energy levels are very constant, if not higher at the second half of that run, then I'm convinced uh, that their fat oxidation rates are plenty high to be able to kind of start structuring their nutrition plan for race day. And then once we kind of have confirmed that, that we start practicing what they're going to do on race day from a nutrition standpoint, in terms of like what they're going to eat and when they're going to eat it and in what quantity.
0: Nice. And how often would you work? How often would you recommend your clients kind of practice that race day nutrition in and then around their training? Is it every weekend? Is it every couple of weekends? How does that look?
1: Yeah. So I usually kind of break their, their long runs. Usually the way I look at it is once I get into the kind of the final third of their, of their training plan, we're starting to really focus the majority of our efforts on building up their long run or their back-to-back long run, depending on how we structure it. Mm-hmm. So with that side of things, we're usually looking at somewhere between six to eight weeks. So I like to kind of divide it into two where like half of it, we're going to use as like fat oxidation field test the other half we're going to use as kind of race day nutrition planning. And uh, so depending on if they're doing back-to-back long runs or solos, that can be anywhere from 12 to 16 long runs or, you know, as few as six to eight. And that's just kind of how that, that that's kind of how I like, like to look at it. Uh, what we're thinking of with race day fueling too, is I like to kind of break it into like, let's have a series of options here. So what's your like, you're fueling a plan. What's your fueling B plan and what's your fueling C plan. And for most folks, usually they'll lean very heavily on their A plan. That's something that we've seen time and time again in long runs in previous races works really well for them. Mm -hmm. And then usually I like their B plan to be something that they also know has worked, but it's maybe not their number one preference. And when i what I really like to see is a contrast between their A and B. So if their A is like a liquid, sweet type of a consistency and flavor, uh, I like their B plan to be maybe like crunchy, salty, savory. So that if they kind of get a little bit of a palate fatigue or a sour stomach or something from their A plan, their B one is a nice contrast that is a little more appetizing. So they don't see find themselves uh, you know, skewing away from their fueling strategy just due to boredom, palate fatigue, stomach issues, et cetera, et cetera. And most of the time, the A and B is all they really need. Mm. C is kind of a little more varied. I like to use aid stations for C plan for myself personally. And a lot of my clients like that as well, where C plan is simply, let's look at the race website or find out kind of what's going to be available at the various aid stations. Make sure we know where those aid stations are. And when you're say a mile or a kilometer outside of that aid station, start thinking about whether you want to try to use that as an option and go into that aid station knowing, okay, I'm going to be grabbing this or I'm going to be going, looking for that. And that's just kind of like a little bit more of a impromptu like day of, I, I I want a change of pace or my A and B isn't working for me any longer. and, And that sort of stuff, just to give them that, that kind of final, uh, option that they have available to them. So they're not necessarily having their race go sideways on them just because they went in there with a single thing that they were thinking they were going to eat the entire day.
0: Yeah, that's awesome. And I love that because it kind of teaches an athlete a bit of flexibility around their thinking, right? So Mm -hmm. if it isn't because there's so much you can't control when you're out there on race day, that if you're not flexible in your approach um, to nutrition, then the psychological aspect of that could derail you more but more than or just as much as the gut related issue could derail you
1: mm-hmm. yeah yeah and it's 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 really funny what motivates you like 70 miles into a 100 mile race to where you think like oh if i if i use like that aid station at mile 70 where i have like salty potatoes in my drop bag as like a motivator at mile 67 like when you're when you're thinking about that pre-race you think there's no way that's going to make me run any faster but then What I see happen a lot of times with that is when you have a situation like that, where let's say they're running, they hit a rough patch at 67, they need to get to that aid station and change their nutrition up a little bit to something a little more savory versus what they had been having them hyper-focusing on, okay, I just need to get to that aid station to get to that, that will otherwise seem like a very, very small incentive becomes something that causes them to hyper-focus on a small benchmark versus the fact that they have 33 miles to run, which I think is really the big derailer for ultra marathons is people get into this headspace where they try to wrap their head around what's left. And they're oftentimes doing that too early because like, even though, you know, 67 miles is a lot of miles on your legs. So you're going to feel that, but 33 miles is still a very long ways to go. So if you find yourself at 67 thinking, how am I going to get 33 more miles done? You're going to just, you're going to mentally and psychologically. Uh, you know shut yourself down and potentially drop out so having little things like that too like a variance in your nutrition so you have something different to look forward to I think helps people block out the race better and causes them to kind of hyper focus on small goals along the way to kind of get to before they start thinking about the finish line
0: yeah 100% and actually that makes me um I have a question here around um how you stay motivated to train for the stuff you're training for. So right now you're ticking off. Well, what's your mileage this week, Zach? What will it be?
1: Uh, let's see. It's, um, what is it? a Tuesday? Uh, yeah, Tuesday. So I plan my weeks Monday through Sunday, just so I have the weekend kind of all in one week. Yeah. Uh, last week I hit 190 miles. I'm trending towards probably about 200 this week. I and then I'll have one more week before taper, where I'll probably try to push just a little bit past what I'll do this week. So, it'll uh, it'll be a lot of running. <laughs> yeah. Uh, thankfully, it's low intensity. I'm targeting between about seven and a half and eight minute mile pace for the most part, because that's yeah. kind of the target pacing I'm hoping to be able to execute on race day. Yeah. And what I notice with that is that for me personally, since I do tend to respond a little better to maybe volume on average than I do in like faster intense stuff. When I do the faster intense stuff, I gotta be a lot more careful with how much volume I'm doing. Whereas it seems like I can really, really pile on a lot of low intensity volume without like a a big increase in injury risk. So that's actually been a a pretty kind of like promising aspect of this training plan as I'm learning even more about that side of things, about how my body kind of responds to some of these kind of freakishly large training blocks.
0: Yeah. And how do you stay motivated? Like, so like, do you have any mental strategies that you use if you wake up at five and are like, mate, I've got to go out and do a three hour (laughs) run. It's the last thing I feel like.
1: Well, I'll tell you this. The last thing you want to do is if you have three weeks of buildup on day two of that, don't start thinking about that last. (laughs) (laughs) It it was funny. I I finished, I actually finished a run. I think, I think it was maybe last night or Sunday or I can't remember. I, I got done And, uh, my wife, my wife, Nicole's an ultra marathon runner as well. So she can very much appreciate and, 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 uh, you know, understand kind of what I'm doing. So, uh, I come back, I'm like, Oh, it feels good to have that one done. And I look at the clock. I'm like, but I just got to do it all over again. (laughs) (laughs) So I think that is the hard part is both just the, the timing of it or like the scheduling of it, trying to make it fit within like your schedule, um, so that you're not neglecting every other aspect of life. Uh, but also, just uh, yeah, the mental side is pretty tough. Knowing like, okay, I just did, I just ran 20 miles this morning, in you know a handful of hours. I'm going to go out and run 10 more, um, and then it's not going to be that much longer till dinner. And then at after dinner, I have to start kind of thinking about what I'm going to do the next day, and that's going to include another 20 miler right away in the morning. So. I think that is the hard part. What I like to try to do, though, is just look at every one of these runs as kind of like one brick or one piece of the puzzle. Yeah. And just think about I've got to, I, I can't move on to the next piece of the puzzle, the next brick until I lay this one or place this one. So uh, when I think of it like that, it allows me to kind of stay in the moment a little bit, which is a little easier for me to wrap my head around. Yeah. And I think one thing I've gotten a lot better at throughout my career and mainly in the last couple of years. Is being able to really kind of hyper focus on what I'm doing at the moment versus overthinking what's coming up and having that kind of create this uh, negative psychological state where I'm you know losing motivation to kind of get through this workout because I know what's coming up is going to also be challenging and you know the the other thing I really like with the motivation side of things is when you're building like a program. Uh, You know, you might be building from four, maybe even six months out. Mm -hmm. So when you first look at, okay, this race, here's my plan. That motivation is super high on week one Mm -hmm. because it's new. You just got done making the plan. You're excited. You're ready to kind of put in the work. Your body's fresh. Your mind is fresh and uh, you just kind of assume it's going to be that motivating throughout. But what I find is if your only carrot is that race uh, at the end, then you're going to have a very hard time staying motivated and staying consistent through the training because there's just not enough reward built into the program. So I like to look at the program as a whole at first while I'm planning it, or at least have that scaffolding laid out as to how I expect it to kind of go, but then also build in benchmarks along the way. Like, um, that's what, that's actually maybe one of the biggest, uh, mental benefits, I think of a deload week. So if I'm going to do say a three week buildup, I, and I'm on week two, I've got a light at the end of the tunnel, knowing that the end of the third week, I get to take a step back, let everything catch back up before I kind of make another push towards, uh, getting everything set up for, for race day. So I think kind of having those small benchmarks built into the plan itself is, is a lot easier to, to kind of, you know, stay motivated throughout.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And Zach, you, you know, are you pushing the fat oxidation rates right now with the slow intensity training and keeping your, your carbs lower? Like what does your nutrition look like at the moment?
1: Yeah, that's a really good question. Cause I think when you start getting up to 24 hours, now we're in a world where I think even a strict ketogenic diet has that potential application as um, you know, at worst, a neutral performance yeah. uh, if not a benefit to some degree. So for this, since it's it's basically about twice as long as what I would normally do on a track for a race, it does open up the opportunity for me to uh, kind of focus even less on carbohydrates as what I would maybe do for like a hundred miler or a fifty miler or a hundred k or something like that. So the biggest difference nutritionally during this peaking phase than ones in the past is I have been just keeping my carbs a bit lower. I think. I'm rarely touching even 100 grams right now. Hmm. So when you think about that in the context of the volume I'm putting up, uh, you, you know, it's it's basically classic ketogenic low. Um, I'm I'm keeping around probably just enough carbohydrate so that I'll be comfortable digesting it on race day. I'll hmm. I'll still use a little bit of carbohydrate on race day, although I will scale back on that as well since the intensity that I'll be doing during the event is going to be relatively low. You know, one thing I have been paying attention to is where my kind of heart rate is settling at, at these paces, because Mm. I'm burning like such a high level of fat when I'm at kind of like maybe 130 beats per minute of heart rate that it's to to defend muscle glycogen through exogenous carbohydrate. I just don't need all that much at all. So versus like the 150, maybe even 155 at times that I'm going to average during, during a hundred mile race, Where at that level of intensity, I'm going to be dipping into that muscle glycogen a little bit more uh, quickly. So, um, 100 grams is kind of about where where I'm peaking at the moment, and that seems to be working quite well. I don't feel like I'm, you know, lacking energy or motivation or anything to kind of to hit these paces. And Hmm. um, my training may be a little different than some folks are looking at from an endurance buildup where there are a lot of traditional endurance events. You're going to probably need multiple systems during race day even. Uh, So you kind of have to keep in a little bit more variety in your workouts. Like if you think of just a standard hard, easy, hard training schedule that a lot of endurance athletes are going to use for like 5Ks, 10Ks and that sort of stuff, you know, they might do short intervals one day. They might do like a tempo or lactate threshold type workout on another day and then a long run on the weekend and then kind of continue through that process. So they're kind of hitting like their VO two max system on the short intervals. They're hitting their, their lactate threshold on that, that, uh, tempo run. And then they're, they're tapping into their kind of aerobic threshold on the long run day. And, you know, for me, it's a little different because I have to, like, I'm never going to touch my VO two max, hopefully on race day, unless it's the last five minutes of that race. So I I'll do those workouts. i will do much earlier in the training Yeah. And those are the type of workouts that are going to take a big chunk out of like my muscle glycogen. Whereas if I go out this morning and run 20 miles at an average heart rate of 125 beats per minute, you know, I might not even see a much of a dip in my muscle glycogen. So I'm not looking to kind of, uh, I'm not looking to defend that as much from exogenous sources during this. I'm just looking to keep enough around that I'm able to, to tolerate it when I use it on race day
0: yeah sure and and has you has your body comp changed at all with the increase in volume or are you able to kind of match your your eating to support the effort
1: yeah it's a good question I think um I noticed maybe like the first big block I did that I got down to maybe about the lowest weight that I usually feel comfortable from a performance standpoint from from me historically if I start dipping down kind of around 135 pounds or so, that's where I start noticing that I'm like, I'm really, it's 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 negatively affecting performance. Um, I've kind of like overrun the power weight ratio stuff. And and it's gonna vary from event to event. Like obviously like yeah. you're, it's gonna be different. You need different power output for like a five kilometer versus a 24 hour and a different power output for a hundred miles versus a 24 hour and all these other comparisons you could make. Um, You know, and I I was dipping down kind of close to that, which is for me that's kind of a sign. Like, okay, I need to make sure I'm getting a little more food in because if I go any lower than this, then it's gonna be, you know, potential for 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 disaster or just poor performance and that sort of stuff. So uh, this last when I did the deload week, I was I I definitely overate on the deload week, um, which was probably just a good a good reset holistically outside of just the reduction in training. And now I have just a little better of a grasp of kind of how much I need to be consuming to kind of stay kind of between 135 and 140 pounds, which is a pretty good spot for me for the intensity at which I'll be racing at Desert Solstice uh, in December. And nice. it is it is kind of shocking how much food it is, though, like
0: <laughs> talk me through it. Zach. What yeah, does it look it,
1: like? Well, my, my typical eating pattern that I found just like that I prefer has been kind of like I like larger meals and less frequent eating. Um, I don't always go that route. I definitely am. I'm, I'm usually able to get away with kind of eating intuitively. And that usually finds me right where I need to be where if I'm hungry, I don't abstain. And you know, if I'm full, I don't force feed myself. And then outside of kind of like peak training, I don't have to do a whole lot of force feeding. But for this one, I'm basically like, all right, this needs to be a 2000 calorie meal. And then I probably need to eat something between this one and my next meal and then dinner and to of two, sometimes 3000 calories. Uh, so it is a lot more food, which just for me means like scaling down the volume per calorie of the food I'm eating. So I'm just doing a lot more things that are high calorie, low volume in order just to kind of not feel like I'm constantly full or bloated and stuff from all that food intake. Um, the way it's looked for me is I'll usually wake up in the morning. I'll have like a cup of coffee with, uh, like either like cream, like, uh, like, uh, like heavy whipping cream, or I'll use this product by my nutrition sponsor S fuels. That's called, uh, S fuels life. And it's just basically like a, a powder. That's, uh, like medium chain triglycerides and stuff in it. And I'll put that in there. Mm. Um, I'll have a, an S fuels life bar, which is basically a protein bar, Uh, before I go out. I don't like to have too much before I run typically, but with these low intensities and the amount of calories I'm burning during this type of training, it's almost a necessity in order to not have to force feed myself later in the day. Uh, When I get back, I'll usually um, make like a, I'll put like, I'll use some oil on a pan and then like six eggs, maybe like four or five ounces of cheese. Um, I'll uh, have maybe another another like s fuels protein bar on top of that maybe some yogurt uh that's been pretty standard um then usually you know i'll be i'll be good for a few hours and if i'm kind of starting to get hungry before my second session out I'll, i'll i'll try to stick to kind of more liquid calories if i if i can just so i'm not filling up my stomach before heading back out there for that, I like uh, S fuels train. It's a powder. It's essentially the same as like a carbohydrate powder that you mix in with like your, your drink, but it's more, it's fat-based. So mm. when I'm staying away from carbohydrates, I really like that. If I am going to do a carbohydrate source during a run, then I'll use the uh, S fuels race plus, which is their product that has like small amounts of fat and protein in it, but it also has like 14, 15 grams of carbohydrate. So usually mm. a packet or two of that, um, on a really big training day is all I'll really need for this intensity. Um, and I like to blend, I like to get my carbs from that, even when I'm doing lower carbohydrate stuff, uh, just because that is going to be my primary carbohydrate on race day. So for me, like practicing that during runs is definitely something that I'm trying to be mindful of. Uh, then I'll, I'll get back from that, from that run. And, you know, dinner could be, you know, anything from salmon, eggs, beef, steak, you know, all sorts of different stuff like that. I'm probably a little more diversified at dinner. I'll steam up some like uh, broccoli or some, some vegetables, some vegetables like that, that I can just like kind of layer on, you know, extra virgin olive oil, uh, um, salt, cheese, you know, anything that's high calorie, low, low density to go with that. Yeah. And then, uh, you know, then I basically just kind of, I'm, that's kind of my main meal. And then like, I'll be snacking on basically fatty protein based type things throughout the rest of the, the evening until I go to bed for the most part.
0: Yeah, nice. And uh, are you a beer man, Zach?
1: Uh, you know, I'm not, I'm not a huge fan of beer, which is like a, a crime for being from the state of Wisconsin where they really love their beer. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I'm not I'm not opposed to, to some adult beverages. I just tend to lean towards like whiskey and that sort of stuff a little bit more um, from a preference standpoint. So I will have some of that too from time to time. Um, you know, I, I'm mindful of the quantity of it just because, you know, from a recovery standpoint is probably not doing me a whole lot of favors. So, um, after that second run in the afternoon, every once in a while I'll I'll pour myself a drink, but, uh, it's not super common.
0: Yeah. And, um, favorite meal,
1: favorite meals, probably, I would say it's a, it's a toss up between like a ribeye steak. Mm -hmm. Um, or I I really like eggs and I just, I, I go through phases with eggs where I'll be eating them a lot and I'll just get in that rhythm. And I, for whatever reason, I've hit that during this training block where I've had some days where I've eaten over a dozen eggs in a day. Cause I'm having like six in the morning and then six again in the evening. <laughs> and it's just like, you go to the grocery store. We were, I, my wife and I were actually joking around about that. Cause we kind of had our grocery list item and we've been just a little more dialed in with it this last yeah. year, because with COVID and everything, we're trying to be mindful of how many times we go to the grocery store. And Cause in the past, like I've got a grocery store right across the street from where our house is. So we've had times where I'd go over there maybe five times a week just because then I could (laughs) kind of pick what I wanted on the day and I didn't have to plan ahead. Yeah. Um, But during this, we're trying to limit it to once a week if we can. So we had kind of our our list of kind of our go-to stuff that we knew about how much we would need for a week. And then I started kind of doing this high volume training and we noticed it's like, okay, we can't get away with like two uh, two blocks of cheese, we're gonna have to get four blocks of cheese. Or yeah, we, yeah, eighteen or thirty six eggs isn't gonna be enough. We're gonna we're gonna need seventy two eggs.
0: <laughs> the people at the grocery store will be like, "Oh, those bidders must be having a party or yeah. catering for a large <laughs> event with all those eggs."
1: Yeah, the competitive eater or an ultra runner, which one is it?
0: <laughs> <laughs> hey Zach, just um, another couple of questions if it's all right. Um, are you still using your continuous glucose monitor?
1: Yeah. So I've actually, so that's something I've been kind of using new. I'm learning quite a bit from it actually. And I had it, uh, I'm working with a company called Levels and they sent me a, like two 14 day patches essentially. And mm-hmm. the first 14 days, I just put it on and was like, I'm just going to do what I normally would do and just get a feel for like what this, what, what, what is happening in my body when I kind of just do what I have been doing to date and kind of just take a little inventory on that and kind of just see, get a gauge and then do the next 14 with maybe a little more of a strict data collection standpoint and a little more like, uh, just like trial stuff where I'm going to really try to identify what is causing what. Mm. So some of the interesting things I learned from that first round of 14 days is, uh, sleep is a pretty big one when it comes to my glucose response. Anyway, I had a day where I didn't get very good sleep. uh, And it was like, my spikes were much higher, they the glucose tended to hang up there a little longer than they would in the past, uh, or on the other days. So that kind of stood out to me. The other thing I noticed was, for me, like I get almost like a little bit of a preemptive glucose spike in the morning when I wake up. I wake Mm -hmm. up and then it's like, I think it might be uh, something to do with just the fact that the majority of my life now I've woke up in the morning and gone for a run or a workout. So it's like my body's almost tuned to know like, you know, within about an hour of waking up, I'm going to be out there running or doing some sort of physical activity. So usually, you know, I'd wake up and it would be maybe 80 milligrams on the glucose reading thing. And then it might creep up even to to a hundred or something like that right before I head out. And then it would kind of creep back down a little bit during the run. And then uh, since I have these large meals that I'm eating, I'll mm. notice of what I get sometimes I'll get a, a not not a massive spike, but I'll get a, a good spike after my meal and then it comes straight back down. Mm. So like, if you look at my thing, it's like kind of flatline, flatline, flat line. And you could see like, oh, there's the two big meals. Cause it's like ding ding. And then it goes flatline yeah. flat line again and then ding ding. And then- <laughs> So I was talking with the guys at Levels actually last week, and they were telling me a few things I could try to see if that would alter that at all without actually changing the the diet at all. And they, a couple things were either, you know, eat slower and uh, do some light movement after the meal and see if that kind of brings it down. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm going to play around with it. I'm not too concerned though, because I'm not like spiking out a range or anything like that. It's yeah. still typically like you know, under 140. And then it comes down right away, it doesn't hang out up there for a long period of time. So I'm definitely like, it's definitely got good control. But I'd be curious just to see kind of what it does, as well as just kind of like what food pairings are doing what so like, one thing is like, when are you having carbohydrates and fiber and proteins and fats within the meal? So Mm. like, one thing I'm kind of curious about is like, if I have a meal where I am going to have a little bit of carbohydrate. so say I have like a potato with that meal, if I eat the potato first, what does that do to my glucose response versus having it at the very end? Yeah. Um, and or what happens if I mix it all together and kind of like a dish and and eat it all kind of simultaneously, um, and just kind of tease out like where, where things are for me. And then also just like, what is giving me specific responses versus what the norm might be? Because there is, there does seem to be a, I actually, I always remember Rob Wolf's, uh, Example where he and his wife were using were measuring glucose, and she would eat like a cookie and get barely any movement on her on her uh, glucose, whereas he'd eat the cookie and it would shoot up like above 150. And then uh, he'd eat a banana and get very little movement. She'd eat a banana and it would spike way up. So it's yeah. like I think that I think we're gonna learn a ton from some of this continuous glucose stuff over the the years as they get more available to people and and, and learn a lot more about just like what it is like what is healthy from one person to the next, and where is the context for someone like me who's you know running as much as I am versus like someone who's maybe doing like a strength based sport or maybe not yeah. any sport at all. And maybe they're just going to the gym for health purposes and things like that. So I think it'll be some interesting stuff coming out from all this.
0: Yeah, I totally agree. And I often think back to like as a university student when I was studying nutrition, we were one of the labs in Australasia that were doing the original um, glycemic index. Uh, studies on foods and so we'd rock on up in the lab we were told not to run we were told you know to eat similarly or not eat beforehand but as uni students we weren't as interested in scientific rigor as we were in getting the 15 dollars or whatever it is they paid us to do the study you know so I'd run sometimes beforehand I wouldn't run the other times and and obviously you know data like that helps form something which is like the glycemic index, which is supposed to tell us a little bit about how that food is going to impact on blood sugar. But that information can't come from the food source itself. It's so much more about the person eating it, right? And the individual factors that impact on on that blood sugar. And um, what you say with regards to the eating, the eating order of food, I think there is some good research, isn't there, to show that if you do eat protein before the carbohydrate, that's going to change that postprandial kind of um, um response and also maybe things like raw apple cider vinegar on your food that might change your blood sugar response um mm-hmm. having yeah yeah having that little bit of movement um post meal might change it too
1: is is isn't cinnamon supposed to be something that brings it down too that's something i haven't tried i didn't try it in the 14 weeks but uh, uh partly i wasn't eating a whole lot of food that cinnamon necessarily went with i guess but. yes um, I might try that too. I'm, I'm going to try a few different things. I think that, that are kind of historically ones that impact that and see what happens. But the other one that I saw interesting that I thought was like mangoes versus apples. I guess a lot of people have a much lower response from mangoes versus apples. Um, ah. so I think it might be something to do with the fiber content, yeah, but interesting. Uh, that, and he yeah, had the timing of it too. I think like, it, it's funny. Cause when you think of the way like a meal is structured, a lot of times you'll have like kind of like a side salad as like kind of that initial disc before you get your main course. Yeah. And I mean, that's basically like low calorie fiber for the most part, unless you're putting a bunch of stuff on it. Uh, so it's almost like it's setting you up to like be ready for the main course and then dinner or, and then if, if you have dessert afterwards, it's like the bulk of the carbohydrates are going to be in that kind of post dinner uh, dessert, which you would be better on your, your, your glycogen response, or I'm sorry, your glucose response. Um, so it's just funny how that stuff ends up kind of like being structured in a way that tends to be like the appropriate way to do it. And then they serve it like kind of on a timeline too, where it's like, you can't really just like, what what I find interesting is like, I'll, sometimes I'll come back from these runs and, um, I'll either have something to get to, or just be hungry and I'll, I'll eat way faster than I probably should. Yeah, <laughs> And, uh, you know, when you go to like to a restaurant or something, you sit down, it's like, there's no real way to do that. You're going to basically kind of have to eat at the pace at which your stuff comes out. So it's almost like thinking of it like that, thinking of eating that way is a way to slow it down. And, and, you know, maybe going for a walk after dinner or something like that is supposed mm. to be a good way to keep it down. But yeah. You know, the other interesting thing I saw in that first two weeks too, was I had a couple times where my glucose dipped really low during a run, actually, I talked to Mm. Dr. Dom Dom D'Agostino about this too, where I dipped down into like the fifties, uh, which he said would normally flatline someone Mm. (laughs) or they'd pass out essentially. And, uh, you know, I'm in the middle of a run. And when I, when I would see that, I was like, I would just take inventory about kind of how I felt and, um, being completely transparent. like, I didn't feel like I wanted to go and do like sprint intervals or anything like that, but I didn't feel like it was really that much more difficult to be running at the low intensities that I was. So whether that's some sort of uh, um, variance that we will start seeing in kind of folks who are living a lifestyle like I am from a training standpoint, or if yeah. it's also something to do with, uh, you know, at that part of the day where I'm on my second run, I'm probably about 40, 45 minutes into it. Uh, you know, I'm probably burning about as high fat as I am at any point during the day. At that point, too, so it may just not be as. Uh, it could just be my body shifting to burning like higher amounts of fat at that intensity, at that time frame, and it's not really an issue for me to have my glucose dip that low. Versus someone who's very dependent on that and would have a hard time functioning in those parameters.
0: Yeah, totally. Like it was like if you felt fine but just didn't have like you know bound bounds of energy then doesn't sound like it would necessarily be a problem i can't remember zach i i remember you asked dom whether or not some sprinting to help (laughs) encourage that because that when you asked him that question i'm like yeah actually it's a great idea what did he say about that
1: um i want to say he said that that might not be something that would register because if i start if i do like a fast sprint my body's going to go straight to muscle glycogen to fuel that effort versus yeah. mobilizing like uh, glucose into my blood. Cause my, my thought was if I do that high intensity sprint, what that will do is will force my, my liver to like release glucose. And then mm-hmm. I would, I would see that from 50 kind of maybe move up to 70 or 80 or something like that on the reader. Um, but I think I, I may have been just not understanding exactly like dom probably well dom definitely has a better understanding of this stuff than i do so i haven't tried it yet though i might i might give it a give it a go if i come across that that low reading again during a run and just force myself through some short intervals and see what happens if it pumps it back up or not but it might be hard to tell too because even when i'd have those dips usually when it would go down that low it would creep back up yeah over the next few minutes or the next like you know 10 15 minutes so it becomes hard to tease out whether it would have done what it ends up doing on the meter anyway or if it would have stayed lower had i not done the sprinting
0: yeah yeah it's so interesting because that's where my brain went to and yeah, you're probably right um not about you not being smart enough but when in my head i'm like yeah i just don't know enough about this stuff and dom sounds like he knows what he's talking about and obviously he does Um, yeah with
1: that. and he's done a lot of work with the continuous glucose monitors for himself mm. personally too i know on his instagram page he's always posting stuff about like what he sees in terms of response to certain things so it's always it's always interesting to follow what he's up to he's uh he's a cool end of one
0: yeah i totally agree and i think that's the the thing with this stuff is that we're all different and i think you've put in such a lot of work zach into figuring out what works for you which is you know which people might think oh that should just be the realm of a professional athlete because it's all part of the job but actually I think any athlete is going to get more from their sport and more from their overall health if they take a bit of that and kind of put it into place and that's why when I work with people I'm like you know yes this is what science might tell us and this is what this other person here is doing but actually we've just got to figure out part, what parts of those things are, are going to kind of suit you or is it something entirely different? So I think everyone kind of has to take the end of one approach really, eh?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I really like the individualized side of nutrition, especially when we're talking about performance. I think it's fine to focus on what like research and what some of these studies have shown in, you know, certain things as a, as a starting point, but ultimately my hope with some of this, some of these like biofeedback devices, like continuous glucose monitors, um, like Aura Ring type things where you can get like data on your sleep quality and stuff as that stuff improves and becomes more um, accessible by the average person, then uh, you know, just the amount of information you can find that's unique to you uh, can put you in a position to either go with that, or try to make any type of like meaningful alterations in order to maybe improve whatever's going on if you want to try to like stick to whatever kind of pattern of eating you're doing uh but yeah i think this i think with when you have something like nutrition which uh you know i always make sure i comment like when it comes to studies and things along the nutrition lines, I do not envy those folks because there's just so many confounders that are built into even the best studies you can do. Mm. And at the end of the day, they got to start, they got to come up with a couple questions to try to answer. And inevitably there's going to be a ton of eyes on that, that want hundreds of questions to be asked and answered. So, you know, you're just never going to get a clear absolutist. This works for everyone type of an answer from any of this stuff and uh ultimately i think what that means is we need to be mindful of what is available from like a research standpoint but then also be willing to kind of work at yourself work at the individual level for yourself to kind of find what's going to work best for you um you know that's that's what i've done and and i think it's been been a huge huge portion of uh kind of where i found my progress in in sport and life
0: yeah awesome zach um wholeheartedly agree um Thank you so much for taking the time out to speak to me today. I super appreciate it. And I'm really looking forward to seeing um, the results of your 24 hour. Good luck with that. And then of course, um, also gonna look forward to your progress updates on your San Fran to New York uh, epic mission that you've got for 2021.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's uh, that's a big project that I've got on the uh, on the calendar at the moment. I'm targeting from September of 2021. I'm going to try to run from San Francisco to New York. Uh, currently, Pete Kostelnik has the, the the record. He averaged, I think, a like 72 and a half miles a day, um, just mind-boggling. So it's going to be a, a very tough one to try to stay on top of. But uh, that'll be kind of the the top end goal of the effort, but ultimately um, regardless of however many miles per day I am able to average, uh, my, my number one goal is to raise as much awareness for a a charity called Fight for the Forgotten that helps build wells for uh, the Pygmy tribe in the Congo um, as well as farms and and homes now too for them. And they're also partnering to kind of develop another arm to that charity, which is going to help develop curriculum for kind of school children up through the high school level in terms of like uh you know trying to solve some of like uh bullying and things like what causes it how do we you know help folks who are both in the position of being bullied as well as help understand better you know why someone would be be doing that sort of stuff in the first place because i think sometimes it's maybe not quite as clear as we would like it to be so uh, I just think it's a great cause. Justin Wren, the founder, is one of the, the kindest human beings I've ever met. So it'll be definitely uh, a big motivator while I'm out there trying to make my way from San Fran to, to New York.
0: Yeah, awesome. And, and can you just tell folks um, where best to find more information about that and also where to find you on the interwebs? Where do you kind of hang out most?
1: Sure. Yeah. So for in terms of information on tran, the TransCon, um, there's not... A ton of information for for my particular effort yet i'm still very much kind of planning and getting it all set up uh in terms of just uh the historic uh, presence of that route if you just google transcontinental run or Pete next transcon run there'll be a lot of information that comes up you'll, you'll be surprised how many people have actually done it and how far back it dates to as well so uh that's kind of a fun one if uh if you're interested in what i'm up to kind of the the one stop. Spot that will kind of link you to everything is my website, which is Zach Bitter, Um I'm probably most active on Instagram uh, and Twitter, which is at zachbitter and and at zbitter.
0: Awesome, Zach! Thanks so much for your time. Enjoy the rest of your day.
1: Yeah, thank you so much for having me on.
0: Cheers. go, team. Um, so that was my convo with Zach. He was awesome, as you can see, and such a professional with regards to being able to just share lots of really useful information. And you can certainly see that whilst, you know, he has a particular way of approaching his training, his nutrition, and why it benefited him, he certainly knows Zealot when it comes to what might benefit his clients. And you can find Zach Bitter at his website, zachbitter.com also over on human performance outliers and you'll find him on insta and twitter at zachbitter at zbitter And um, next week on the podcast, I have a super interesting conversation with Dr. Nikki Key all about the low energy availability in athletes and the progression of the female athlete triad to encompass other elements of athlete health and of course, male athletes and um, so we talk all about relative energy deficiency in sports so if that's a topic that you're interested in or that you want to learn more about absolutely tune in next week until then though if you like this episode and all of the episodes please go over to your favorite podcast platform and subscribe and leave a five star review because that just raises the awareness of this podcast out there. And I certainly don't take for granted that you guys have taken the time to listen to what I bring to the table and my guests bring to the table because it is certainly contested field out there for what goes in your earphones every week. Until then though, you can get hold of me on Facebook at Mickey Willardin Nutrition, on Instagram and Twitter at Mickey Willardin, and I share all sorts of things over there. You can also contact me via my website at MickeyWillardin.com and if that's one way that you would love to support the podcast, absolutely sign up to my nutrition coaching online. And I know many of you have asked me how you might want to do that, so that gives you access to weekly emails, meal plans, every month with shopping lists, the ability to ask me questions um, at any time that I see and respond to, and also our weekly forums that we have on our members only Facebook page. And in addition to that, I do actually have a joint collaboration that will be ready for February called Shreduary, um, along with Rebecca Keat and Siri Lindley from Team Sirius. And so you can find out more information about that in the coming weeks as well. Until next week, though, team, have a fab week and uh, enjoy the rest of your day. Thanks for listening.